Merry Christmas. The four evangelists, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, walk into a bar. This already sounds like a good joke, doesn't it? Anyway, they're having a debate about who is going to write the best gospel. Mark jumps right in and says, I'm going to write the best gospel because I'm going right to the beginning. I'm going all the way back to the ministry of John the Baptist. Then Matthew chimes in. Oh yeah? I'm going to write the best gospel because I'm going to trace Jesus' ministry all the way back to Abraham, the first Jew. Then Luke jumps in and says, Ha! I'm going to write the best gospel because I'm going to trace Jesus' ministry all the way back to the first human, Adam. I dare you to beat that. And then John the Evangelist slowly swiveled on his bar stool. His gaze calm and steady, his eyes narrowed with cunning, and said, I am going to start my gospel before time began. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And thus began two millennia of confusion about what on earth John was talking about. (laughs) All four of the Gospels contain a prologue. A brief introduction which prepares the reader for what is to follow. John's gospel is the only one that opens with poetry. But as referenced in my joke, it's also the only one who begins his story about Jesus before the beginning of time. That is the ultimate trump card, by the way. Rudolf Boltman provides a wonderful analogy for music to explain the function of John's prologue. He writes, The prologue is an introduction in the sense of being an overture, leading the reader out of the commonplace into a new and strange world of sounds and figures, and singling out particular motifs from the action that is now to be unfolded. John's prologue reads like an index of key themes that will recur throughout John's gospel. Light and darkness, Jesus as the source of all life, Jesus as completely equal to God. John the Baptist as a principal witness to Jesus, the world's opposition to Jesus, becoming children of God through rebirth, beholding the glory of God in Jesus, and Jesus as the only Son of God that has a uniquely close relationship with the Father. These just scratch the surface of the themes that are foreshadowed in this prologue. Although it is somewhat difficult to hear this in our English translations, this passage is one of the most poetic in all of the New Testament. Many scholars have even theorized that, like the hymn in Philippians 2, this was either a very early Christian hymn that has been tacked on to the beginning of John's Gospel, or that John has composed this hymn for use in his Christian community, that he writes this hymn for his community. I think the latter option is most likely, but then again, I attend a church that's blessed to have many musical composers in our midst who write music for us. Either way, John uses poetry at the beginning of his gospel to reframe the Jesus story, to transport the reader back to the time before time, to engage our imaginations in a way that only art can do. Listen again to the opening words. In the beginning was the Word, 
And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and without him not one thing came into being. What has come into being in him was life, and the life was the light of all people. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. These words might sound vaguely familiar, don't they? We've heard them before. In the beginning, we've heard these words. In fact, we've heard these words in the beginning of our Bibles. The very beginning, in fact. So for those of you who get a twinge of anxiety when you're trying to find something in the Bible during a church service, this is your moment to shine. (laughs) Turn boldly with me to the very beginning of the Bible. That's the black book. You really can't mess this up unless you go to the table of contents. Go to Genesis 1 and read along with me. Genesis 1 says this. In the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, the earth was a formless void and darkness covered the face of the deep, while a wind from God swept over the face of the waters. Then God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. So how does God create everything? He speaks it into existence. John intentionally picks up the poetic opening of Genesis and fills it out with the full revelation of God in the person of Jesus Christ. The word of God, God's speech in both Genesis and the Gospel of John is the agent of creation. Throughout the Old Testament, the Hebrew people continue to reflect on and further develop this idea that the word of God is an agent of creation, that it's creative, it's active, it's present in the created order, continually proceeding from God's throne to enact the Father's will on the earth communicating God's presence, guidance, and purpose to God's people. Our God is not a silent idol. He speaks. First century Judaism was fascinated with this concept of the word of God as a creative agent. During the same time period that the Jews were reflecting on this, the prevailing Greek culture, the whole known world, believed that all of creation came into being through something called the Logos, which literally means word. This divine word or reason created and sustained everything. As early as um, around 10 AD, Philo of Alexandria, a Jewish philosopher, was melding the word of God in the Old Testament, this concept of the word of God that creates everything, with the Greek philosophical conception of the logos, literally word, the divine reason that gave life to the whole of creation and held everything together. In the same way, John takes this term logos and he inserts it into the narrative in Genesis. He takes the logos from Greek philosophy 
and puts it into this poetry. Robert Kaiser, who's a leading scholar on the Gospel of John, writes, John intends to apply this broad religious philosophical category, this view of the universe, and apply it to Jesus. In effect, John is saying, yes, Christ is all of this. He's the Greek logos, the Hebrew Bible word, Jewish wisdom, all rolled into one person. Logos for the Christian, he writes, is a person. The logos is not an abstract philosophical concept. It is not a category of religious experience, nor is it speculative religious mythology. It is person, enfleshed, living, historical person. The incarnation, the logos made flesh and blood, sets Christianity apart from every other world religion and philosophy. Recently, I was having a conversation uh, with an atheist, and he asked me, if God didn't exist, how would your life be any different? I had to respond that my life is impossible apart from the fact of God's existence. It would be like talking about a married bachelor, or breathing without air, or writing without words. My life is impossible apart apart from the fact of God's creative word. Life without the word of God is oxymoronic. As John puts it, all things, all things came into being through him. And without him, not one thing came into being. What has come into being in him was life, and the life was the light of all people. So what does this have to do with Christmas? After all, I started this morning by wishing you all a Merry Christmas, didn't I? Well, in short, it means that everything has to do with Christmas. The intimate relationship between the Father and the Son, which existed before time began, has been extended to include us. As John so aptly puts it, it is God the only Son who is close to the Father's heart, who has made him known. The light has come into the darkness. The eternal has become temporal. The invisible has become visible. The Almighty has become a weak baby. God has inextricably linked himself to his creation through the person of Jesus Christ, his word made flesh. To paraphrase Karl Barth, in the person of Jesus Christ, God once and for all time declares that he is human. He is human. Jesus is the good news. He is God's message, God's word to humanity. He is the word. You know, when the four evangelists sat down to write the good news, they each ended up telling a story about Jesus. Ultimately, this is because all of history is his story. It's about Jesus. This has a number of implications for our lives. First, it means that our stories are immensely important. The stories that you bring with you this morning are immensely important. 
We are actors in a much larger story that finds its source, its script, and its conclusion in Jesus, in his story, the good news. We are grafted into this great story not as puppets, not as puppets, but as principal actors, not as mindless slaves, but as beloved children. This is why Paul writes in today's epistle reading that God sent his son so that we might receive adoption as children. So you are no longer a slave, but a child. And if a child, then also an heir through God. John picks this this idea up and encapsulates it so well when he writes, But to all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave power to become children of God. We are each given, every day even, the opportunity to become a child of God by receiving the child of God. Jesus, born of Mary, and believing in his name. The word of God, excuse me, the word of God left his family. He left his close, intimate, personal relationship with the Father. He left that to bring us into his family, to make us part of his family. This text is really about joining a family, isn't it? We have been given a completely new identification. As Isaiah tells us, at the restoration of all things, God will call us by a new name as a mark of this new identification. In the same way that Jesus is radically identified with the Father as the Word of God, we are now radically identified with the Son and so brought into relationship with the Father. Which means that we are now the fleshly dwelling place of the Word. The word became flesh and lived among us, John writes. Which we can literally translate that as the Lord now pitches his tent with us. That's what it means in the Greek. He's camping out with us. He's hanging out with us. The word is with us now. He inhabits our physical bodies and gives us his glory. Notice that I said us. This is our inheritance as a family. Not just mine. Not just yours. Ours as a family. Father Kevin O'Neill, an inner city parish priest, recently wrote an opinion editorial piece in the New York Times following the tragedy in Newtown, Connecticut and the attack on firefighters in upstate New York. Here's what he wrote. Faith is lived in family and community. And God is experienced in family and community. We need one another to be God's presence. Suffering isolates us. Loving presence brings us back, makes us belong. A contemporary theologian has described mercy as entering into the chaos of another. Christmas is really a celebration of the mercy of God who entered the chaos of our world in the person of Jesus. Mercy incarnate. I have never found it easy to be with people who suffer, to enter into the chaos of others. Yet every time I have done so, it has been a gift to me, better than the wrapped and ribboned packages. I am pulled out of myself to be love's presence to someone else, even as they are love's presence to me. You know, we toss around terms like home church and church family. 
Well, here's my proposed New Year's resolution for you. Mean it. Really mean it. Take a moment right now and look at your neighbors. Literally, look at your neighbors. Look at them. These are your brothers, your sisters, your mothers, your fathers, your daughters, your sons. This is your family born not of blood or of the will of the flesh or the will of man, but of God. Are you willing to take up the incarnational ministry of Jesus to enter the chaos of another person's life and love them? Now I want you to look at the empty seats around you. Look, look at the empty seats. Let me tell you something that Megan and I have found to be true in our ministry. People are desperate for a home. They are desperate for a place to belong. They are desperate for family. I know I was. My parents separated when I was eight years old and I needed family. And my church was family for me. Many of the people outside these walls are waiting for an invitation from you. Earlier I said that the word of God left his family to bring us into his family, into his intimate and eternal relationship with the Father. Now he calls you to do the same. I don't know that anything would have been different, but I can't help but wonder how the story of Adam Lanza, the shooter at Sandy Hook Elementary, might have been different if he and his mother had been surrounded by love, surrounded by a church family. I wonder how the story of William Spangler, the shooter in upstate New York, would have been different if he had met the father's only son, full of grace and truth through a local church. Lastly, I wonder how the stories of loved ones and survivors of these terrible events will turn out. Will the family of God leave their comfort zones to find them and bring them home? Will we enter their chaos and misery to bring them home? So here's another New Year's resolution for you. It's a bonus. Make every Sunday bring a friend or stranger to Church Sunday. By the way, if you're visiting here today for the first time, there's something I want to tell you. Welcome. We would love to have you join our family. We really would. Jesus, the Word of God, has entrusted his mission to us. As the Father has sent the Son, so the Son now sends us. The world is desperate for the light and life that Jesus has to offer even if they reject it, and us. As you leave here today, you can be certain of one thing. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness will not overcome it. Amen.